All right, hello and welcome to uh, the third part in this uh, reading group on Capitalism and Desire by Todd McGowan. Um, this chapter is a short one, um, but it's got a really, really interesting concept of the gaze, and I'm going to try to really kind of draw out its importance, because it's not just a, a random concept, it actually, you'll find it useful, I think. I think if nothing else, you're going to find that... Um, you're going to see how this is a central concept actually in psychoanalysis and in, in, in that type of therapy and how it might have uh, something interesting to say in relation to um, uh, political action as well. Before I do that, I'll just kind of reiterate something we've talked about a couple of times, but kind of uh, the reason why I chose this book, um, the reason why, sorry, I'm just playing around with the view. There we go. The reason why I chose this book is because you know Todd McGowan is a clear writer. Uh, he's a very good writer, and that's uh, the, if some of you I know read philosophy, and you know how rare that can be. You get someone who is a is a clear writer, um, who is a good writer, and also he applies things. So his his area of interest is film studies, or as his area of expertise. So he'll apply the theories to to movies, but he'll also apply these theories to the socio-political world. Um, now, the one drawback of that is if you're reading this book, um, and you know it's about this, and the whole point of the book is it's about desire and capitalism, right? He's arguing that capitalism is sustained by a certain mode of desire, a certain form of desire. So that's the argument of the book, and he's basically saying that there is another way of desiring. Um, but it can be off-putting if you disagree with his political leanings. Um, uh, but that's okay. Like, that's great. That You can still get all of the concepts, even if you do. I don't think this is overly political. It has the word capitalism in it, and it uses the word capitalism a lot. But you could talk about consumerism or a form of capitalism, or there's different ways to, to, uh, to kind of, like, see what he's saying. So you don't need to go with Todd McGowan's uh, you know, political leanings, uh, I think, to get really good stuff out of this book and kind of learn some really, really interesting concepts that I think are useful in terms of some of the things that uh, we're interested in in parotheology. Um, you know, personally, I'm very closely aligned with the theory of Todd McGowan, but I think we would disagree uh, on certain political things. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm the same as I, I kind of engage with Todd McGowan's work. I really like it. Um, I like the theory side, but there's definitely areas that I, that I think we would kind of like uh, have a discussion or debate about. So anyway, just saying that um, as, a, as a beginning. Now I'm going to briefly outline this notion of the gaze, uh, and then we'll get into some discussion. So basically in the last chapter, he made two arguments. Two arguments were simple in a way, right? The first argument is that we tend to think of ourselves as individuals who enter the social world, right? Um, so I see myself as a child, as a baby born into the world, and then my family socializes me. They help me engage in the school, etc. is designed to help socialize you. And Todd McGowan was saying that it actually, the social is first. We arise out of the social. Now, actually, this makes total sense when you think about it. Life arises out of being. Consciousness arises out of life. 
self-consciousness arises out of consciousness reason arises out of self-consciousness so you know you think of these these are emergent properties so you kind of have for example stuff like some sort of like primordial soup and out of that primordial soup gradually emerges some sort of uh, single cell organism that eventually you know splits and, and go, gets more and more complex and so in a similar way it's not that we start as an individual who enters the social world the social exists and, and our sense of ego our sense of self gradually arises out of the social environment. And the reason why that's important to Todd McGowan is he says like if, if you think of yourself as an individual engaging with the social world, then you're separate from it. What you look at, you are apart from. Now you can engage in it, you can actively be involved in the world, and you can also remove yourself from the world. And while we can't remove ourselves entirely from the world, this notion of the individual first creates a type of separation. That was his first argument. His second argument, very briefly, was we tend to think of ourselves as utilitarian subjects. So when you look at kind of uh, evolutionary psychologists um, or behavioral economists, it's all based on the idea that we try to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. So those were the two. Oh, and then his, his response to that is, actually, as human beings, we often try to sabotage ourselves and that is a dimension that we need to understand so those were the two central claims of the last chapter reason why i bring those up is because this chapter could be seen as a type of proof or evidence of those claims especially the first claims evidence of both claims but it's more obviously evidence of the first claim and the reason for that is um the gaze is the name that is given in philosophy and in particularly structural psychoanalysis. It's the name that's given to the experience of finding yourself in the scopic field. You finding yourself in what you're looking at, right? So we're going to kind of like look at what that means. But if I compare and contrast it with a look, if I look at something, I'm separate from it. I'm just looking at it neutrally. A gaze, and it's even in the definition of gaze, when you gaze at something, there's something of your desire that's involved, right? If you gaze at something, you're, you're desirous in some way, right? And, and so that's, that's kind of partly how you can think about this, right? We, we think we're looking at the world when we're actually, our desire is interwoven with the world. Um, Alanka Sapanchik has a great uh, way of describing this with an old joke. Right? So there's this old joke that this guy comes home from work, sits down on his big uh, armchair, turns on the television and there's all these adverts on. And he says to his wife, grab me a beer. And his wife like, you know, looks at the ceiling and goes into the kitchen, gets him a beer, gives him the beer. And he says, well, he says uh, sorry, I should have said this. He says, get me a beer before it starts, looking at the TV. She gets the beer. He drinks the beer and he says, uh, listen, get me another beer before it starts. She gets him another beer. He says, listen, get me another beer before it starts. She does it one more time. And then he turns to her and says, listen, one more beer before it starts. And then she looks at him and says, you get your own beer. I'm not your skivvy. Don't be so lazy. And then the guy looks away and says, ah, oh, it's started, right? And so Atlanta Sapanchik says that this is the gaze, right? 
the guy thinks that he's just observing something, right? He's just observing his wife getting angry. He knows she's going to get angry. He's got home. He's sitting in the chair. He's going like, oh, it's going to start anytime now, right? But actually, he is in, interwoven with the, with the anger of his wife. He's actually participating in it. He's starting it. He's creating it. <laughs> um, so he's waiting for something to start that actually he has started. Now, this is the gaze. And the reason why this is so important is one, well, you start to realize when you really understand the gaze, you understand, oh, yeah, I am intertwined with the social world. There's like a quantum or let's call it an existential entanglement between me and the world that I just see, think that I'm looking at that's objectively happening. Now, why is that so important? Well, in psychoanalysis, it's really important because you see it every day, right? Analysts see this all the time in the clinic. Someone is just experiencing their life. They're experiencing a relationship that's bad. They're, they're experiencing problems with their family. They're experiencing a job that they hate. They're in some sort of weird situation with their friends. And they think that this is just happening to them, right? It just happens to be occurring. And then through analysis, they begin to realize, oh, no, I'm intertwined in what seems to be happening. I'm not a passive observer. There is something going on in this situation that, that I am caught in. There's barriers to me, say, leaving this relationship that to other people, there's no barriers at all. Like, why don't you just leave, right? That's not a good relationship. Just get out. But you don't experience it like that. You experience it as something that, that is impossible to leave something that you, you can't possibly think about ending. Um, and that barrier that you think is just an objective barrier is not an objective barrier. It's something that is intertwined with your desire, with your history, with the things that have happened to you. And the first step um, to kind of freeing yourself from unhealthy uh, patterns in your life, what's called... Uh, uh, repetition compulsions, where you repeat things. The first is to kind of realize that there's something of your desire that's interwoven with it. You're playing something out. There's something of you that's in the situation. Now, this is even more difficult to see when the fact is, like, it sounds so weird to say, it's like, we're, we don't orchestrate this, like, not in a conscious way. We often find ourselves, to use the example of a relationship, we might just find ourselves attracted to a certain type of person that is likely to play out a scenario that we want to repeat. We don't really know that's what we want, but we find ourselves drawn to someone. And if it turns out that they're not like that, we sometimes try to make them into that, like the joke of the man with the wife, that somehow we can try to help orchestrate a situation and then it feels because it's empirically the case. So you're going like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that I would be in this situation. But there's, there's all of these small things that we do that kind of sometimes kind of push things in certain directions and create certain environments. Now, the point of all this, and, and Todd McGowan uses the example of eating spinach because he says, like, whenever it comes to food, we know that there's an entanglement. I might say spinach is horrible, but I also know that that's because it's horrible to me. There is an objective thing that's spinach, but as it hits my 
taste buds is and I'm participating in this experience with, with spinach, it has a certain reality for me. It's the same with the scopic field. It's the same with our jobs and our relationships, our health. All of this can have something of ourselves intertwined within it. And by acknowledging that, seeing it, beginning to understand it, you actually start to get a distance from it and, you, and it can change. This is why, by the way, you can find people who they literally can't get, say, get over somebody that they've split up from. They can't get over it. There's going to like, I'm never going to get over it. It's like, it's an absolute barrier. And then one day it's gone. And it's not even mourning that it kind of happened gradually. It's just the barrier's gone. And it's like, wow, did I have that barrier? Right? This, was that even there? Like something that seemed just the way things are was actually contingent and was very, very weak and just fell apart and fell away. So in analysis, sometimes what, what the analyst does is they help to make connections between different parts of your life that just seem to be contingent happenings and go, oh, well, it's funny that this is repeating in, in a similar way as what happened when you were 17 and what happened in this part of your life. And you start to see patterns emerge and you go, oh my goodness, that's because I'm replaying like this traumatic experience I had at school or whatever. Um, so this is, the, of course, the idea that those who do not know their history are condemned to repeat it, right? The idea that if it, as you come to know your history, it actually frees you from compulsive repetitions where you, you know, continue to repeat things. Now, in politics, it's similar. You can look at certain political systems that seemed eternal, that seemed just to, that they would never shift, that almost overnight collapse because people stop believing in them. Their, people's desire changes. So like the Soviet Union can be seen as this, this system that seems so impenetrable. And um, I've read some people who've you know, talked about uh, their experience and the collapse of the Soviet Union, military people, et cetera. And what, what you often see is this notion that it's almost felt like one day nobody believed it in it anymore. They didn't fight it. Fighting it kind of was actually adding to it. Fighting it was, it was too difficult to fight. How do you fight a militaristic system? How do you fight the secret police? How do you fight the whole governmental structure? Like, you know, individuals cannot fight and a system as big as that. But weirdly what happened is people stopped believing it in the military, in the police, in the government. And, uh, just, and as people stopped believing in it, it just started to crumble because it isn't an actually existing thing. It exists only in so far as people believe it exists, just like money. Like money is only valuable because we all believe it's valuable, right? If, if, if it, it's, it works because of, of our shared belief that this note has value. If, if we all stop believing that, then the whole thing would collapse, right? Um, so Todd McGowan's making a claim that any, any socioeconomic system that seems to be just objectively real is, is real insofar as we are enmeshed within it. Our desire is connected to it. And by the way, by desire, it can be hatred, right? You can attack the system. It's still legitimating the system. The system is there and you're attacking it or you love it. But it is the investment in the belief in the system that, that makes it feel like it's just the background of reality. 
And so the argument is that on an individual basis, something stops having an, uh, an effect if you stop believing in it. Now, of course, a socioeconomic system is not going to collapse because you stop believing in it, but it's going to stop existing for you. Um, I've experienced this in my own life in personal ways that most of us have where, I'm going to think of an example. Um, well, just where there's maybe some sort of blockage in your life that you just can't get over and it just feels like you'll never get over it. And then there's a shift in your perspective and suddenly the blockage is no longer there. It's just no longer there. Um, I think about this in terms of like, in, in pure in terms of sexuality, whenever, uh, you know, you're a society where being seen as being gay is bad, um, this can be internalized within the whole structure. So if you're gay, you might kind of like want to hide it even from yourself and you might feel bad about it. You might not be able to go out with a person that you want to go out with. And you, you, this is kind of like this thing. It's just, that's just the way it is. And then maybe if, if that breaks within you, suddenly you can just go out with who you want. Now, the truth is within the society, there's still effects. So you might be judged, you might be looked down on, you might even be beaten up, right? So there are real world effects, but it's no longer libidinally in you. So now you might just have to be careful because you're going like, all right, I have to be careful because I might do want to get beaten up. But suddenly the barrier that seemed to be just there that was stopping you, it, it's not even that it chipped away. This is the crazy, it's not even that it chipped away. It's like you have a paradigm shift and then suddenly the, and suddenly it's just, all these opportunities are open to you that, that weren't open to you. Um, so with, with the gaze, uh, Todd McGowan is saying, is this, and this is why therapy, by the way, is not counseling. Because if I'm a counselor, if I'm a life coach, for example, you know, I'm trying to give you techniques for improving your life. Nothing wrong with that, right? Say you've got a business and I'm saying you should do this, get up at this time, go for a run, have a coffee, spend an hour doing emails, whatever it is, like we'll set up a routine and, and you try to force yourself to do certain things, right? Analysis doesn't do any of that. And there's a reason. Analysis is this weird thing where the, the, the biggest change that will happen in your life is not something you have to fight for, right? You don't fight it. You change your paradigm and you no longer have to fight it. Something just becomes free. Because there's a whole thing in analysis, the more you fight something, the more kind of you set up resistances and you get into all of these, these, these knots. Um, but to take an example again of a relationship is somebody keeps on going out with people who reject them and, who, and, and ultimately want that some, somewhere unconsciously. And then they discover that they felt rejected by their parents who sent them off to boarding school. And they have this, they're replaying this, game with their parents in their relationship and so consciously before this insight they are trying to find someone who won't reject them kind of consciously but unconsciously they keep replay, replaying this rejection thing now they've realized what's going on they feel it they've worked through it in analysis they've worked through that rejection now they don't have to work to find someone who won't reject them. Now they're freed from their unconscious investment in that activity. And so they can be more free to find someone. Now they may be unlucky and find someone that doesn't work, but it's they, they've now no longer got a libidinal investment in that type of relationship. So Todd McGowan is saying, you don't fight capitalism by saying, for example, I want to buy less, right? I'm going to become more minimalist. I'm going to stop myself from 
from buying coffee every morning. I'm going to stop myself from doing all of these unnecessary things, right? And you, you force yourself. Like, that might work to some extent. You might be able to stop yourself from doing certain things. But Todd's talking about something even more radical which, and, and easier, which is once you change your mode of desire, you won't have to actually force yourself to lead a less frenetic life. It's just going to happen. It's just going to be very natural to you. And the political dimension of this is weird. This is where people kind of like have a back and forth with Shizek because in many ways, Shizek's main political intervention is what he calls, I would prefer not to, which is uh, Bartleby in uh, that book. I forget the name of it. <laughs> um, but the I would prefer not to is this, um, is this active non-activity. It's an active non-act. It's a type of non-participation in a, in a corrupt system. It's not fighting for it. It's not even fighting against it. It's, it's, just, it's kind of like no longer feeling its power. Um, Rosa Parks is a good example of this in a way where uh, someone, go, she goes, right, I'm just going to sit in the bus. I'm not going to, this whole system is irrelevant to me. I'm just going to ignore it. I don't believe it. I don't feel it in my body. I'm just going, I prefer not to. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to participate in this. And this, I would prefer not to, is kind of a radical act. Or Mother Teresa with the caste system in Hinduism, where she just ignored it, right? Everybody is of equal value. This, there is a weird kind of like just complete indifference to the caste system, not fighting it or loving it, weirdly just acting, not as though it didn't exist, because really in her it didn't exist. Just being free libidinally from that, then... Was able, you know, she was able to kind of have a lifestyle, a life that was seen as incredibly radical. So it is, it's a weird form of inaction that is not simply quietism. It's the idea that because we are intertwined with social reality, when we libidinally disinvest from that, we that is a political act. That is, um, it's not only going to be helpful for you. It's going to. It's, it's one less person who's plugged into the matrix, if to use that analogy. The, the great thing about the matrix is the analogy of batteries plugged into the matrix. You can fight it or you can love it. It doesn't matter when you're in the matrix. Finally. The point is you want to withdraw your libidinal energy from the system. And the trick, which I don't think he talks about here, but this is, the, I think, the work of parotheology, is when enough people unplug themselves, um, a different form of community can arise. And so there is something, I think, political about having a community that is freed from the frenetic pursuit of the sacred object, the thing that will make you complete. Like communities of hundreds of people together, freed from that, is an aroma of life to some. To some, it's a stink of death, to others, a room of life. But you have enough communities like that. It can be a very powerful political act. So that, that's the only thing I want to say then about this chapter. There's only one real point, um, but it's the gaze. And the gaze, as I said, is the traumatic. We didn't talk about this. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, as we talk together. But there's something traumatic always about being caught by the gaze. 
because you're kind of seeing your own desire. It's almost like walking into your room, turning the light on and seeing someone in the corner of the room and it's you. <laughs> so that's how traumatic it is, right? You're in the scopic field and then you discover yourself in the field. You discover your desire in the field of, of reality. So that's always a bit traumatic. Um, and it's also responsibility inducing because we can't distance ourselves. Like, uh, you know, online when we attack people or whatever, we're going like, oh, well, we're attacking something of ourselves. We, we can't separate ourselves. All right, uh, let's jump in. Does anybody want to start with um, anything about the gaze or anything, uh, any paragraph you'd like to analyze? Yeah, I'll, I'll 